we don't want to deal with the underlying issue of race. Well, the private system is different because it's all about profit. But here I am, sentenced to die in prison, a federal life sentence where there is no possibility of parole. And I came back. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Social Discord, episode 19. 20 Years in the Prison System, interview with Donald Gilliard. I'm your host, Dalen Turk. I'm Karen Tebow. And I'm Curtis Medina. Now, this is the second part of our series on private prisons in America, and today we have a wonderful guest on, as we uh, previewed in the first episode. That man is Donald Gilliard, a political consultant whose life story is the subject of the novel, But for the Grace of God, I Should Be Dead. Donald was sentenced to 100 years in prison, but was miraculously let out after 20 years through dedication, hard work, and faith. Donald, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm excited and looking forward to being able to dialogue with a subject that I think is important to to all of us and important to our country. You know, we were we were yeah. talking in the last episode, and it's it's a it's a very dense dense topic and previous to this i i honestly didn't know a lot about the prison system or the private prison system in america really at all so i i learned a lot from this but it's it's a really dense topic that i feel like not a lot of people talk about because one it seems like there's not a lot of transparency around it but two it's also just a lot to talk about well it is and um and and that's because you know in america um, when you get a prison sentence, we don't think about uh, rehabilitation, um, and, and it's it's a it's an inside look at who we are as people, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and um, um, of redemption and second chances, and um, you know, you know, what do we want to get out of it, out of out of incarceration? What do we want to do? Do we want to punish mm-hmm. him for the crime? Although we want to help them get um, rehabilitated, learn from their mistakes and become productive citizens contributing to our tax bases and help make in America a better place. Because there are really some talented people uh, uh, that happen to be in prison and deserve this opportunity to contribute to this country. Definitely. Yeah. That, that, that's interesting. I, I love how you put that because, you know, it's it's not just about you know, being helping the person, but it's also about helping society as a whole. Because if you if you bring people back into the fold, you help them out, you lift them up, you know, then society as a whole benefits. I love that that idea there. Oh, absolutely! They're able to take care of their families, take care of their children, and so it's it's um, it, it takes uh, a, a lot off of the government to have to take care of children that comes out of homes and houses of that sort. And it just benefits everybody for them to become productive. It really does. Now, Donald, as we mentioned uh, in the title of the episode, 20 years in the prison system. And I know this obviously is a big part of your life and what you're working at um, with your political consulting and whatnot. So could you tell us and the listeners a little bit more about your circumstances within imprisonment? Yeah. Well, first I spent 50 years uh, in prison. Um, I spent nine of those years or eight of those years in state prison in North Carolina. 
And then I spent two and a half years in a private prison in Oklahoma, and then the final eight years to make 20 um, in the federal system. So I did the whole 20 years straight, but it was between state prison, private prison, and federal prison. What's the difference between a state prison and, and a federal prison from the perspective of, of, the, uh, of the person serving time? Well, um, I think what happens in a state system um, is that um, they, they run their prison a lot different from the federal government. That's why mostly in the state prisons, you see a lot of stabbings, a lot of killings, um, it's because they treat you like an animal from the time you get in. It's like you're nobody. There are no programs in place. And um, I mean, it's everybody in there. It's a doggy dog world. Um, um, it's like everybody's in the sardine can and you're angry and you're frustrated and you're upset and, you, and they throw you all and then there's no programs um, to help you develop. And it, it creates a bitter environment. And that's why you have your stabbings, your gang wars, and that sort of stuff in a state prison. The federal system has a different theory. Their theory is if we treat you better, you will act better. And so the facilities are nicer. You've got a recreation yard to go out and exercise, you got the libraries to go and study. Um, you got different ball teams to, to go. You're able to practice your different religion in a certain way. Um, you fed better, more humanely. They treat you more humanely. And therefore, it creates a safer environment in the federal system. And that's why you will see less stabbings and all of that in the federal system. Now, just for clarification, when you say the federal system, are you speaking of government-run federal prisons or are you talking government-funded private prisons? No, I'm talking about government-run federal prisons. Okay, and so obviously you just said the vast majority of your time was spent in government-run facilities. How does that differ from your time within a private system? Well, the private system is different because it's all about profit. It's all about profit. And so so they skim on if they could get away with having three guards instead of five guards because they got to pay them the salary, they'll do that. And so it creates more of an unsafe environment in that way as well, because it's all about cutting expenses, however, to make it cheaper for them so they can make more money and more profit. Unsafe for the guards and for the people serving time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really interesting because we talked about this a lot on our episode the other week and we talked about that was our theory. We were like, how can you provide for these individuals and rehabilitate them when your bottom line is profit? So to hear from somebody that was on the other end of that and to hear that that's kind of confirmed is a little is pretty upsetting, honestly. Yeah, well, it's true. And that's that's just the way it is in the uh, in the private prison. I was in CCA prison, which was Correction Corporation of America. I was in their private prison in Hinton, Oklahoma. And um, in fact, the whole prison um, consisted of five or 600 inmates that they flew from North Carolina to fill that entire prison. 
Wow. Uh, and it was interesting because Hinton, Oklahoma was a, a town that had one African-American in the entire town. Wow. And the prison, and the prison was 80% African-American. Wow. That's wow. wow. Yeah. You hear statistics like that and it's just like, oh my goodness. Like th- how yeah. this, this system's not built for rehabilitation. The system's not built for justice. And it seems so clear at times. Not at all. Well, and we talked a lot about the circumstances that led to these overpopulations of prisons, how we started criminalizing things, these minimum sentences that we added. And do you think you could walk us a little bit through your journey to getting to prison? And and if you felt like the justice system served its purpose when it placed you there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'd be more than happy to do it. Um, I got addicted to drugs. And um, at first, I was I was involved in politics. I'd been involved in politics since since the early seventies. And um, when I went to college in nineteen seventy six and seventy eight, I took a leave of absence from college to be state director for a candidate running for governor of South Carolina. Um, so I'd been involved in in, in, in politics. Um, thereafter. You know, I got um, involved in, and got addicted to drugs. And um, in order to cure that 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 drug habit that I had, um, it threw you um, in the midst of being a dealer. But you're not really a dealer because you're really not making any money. Um, you just want to give somebody enough so you can have enough drugs to use for yourself. And so I got caught out there like that with those bad decisions and making the bad choices. I remember one time um, I, I, uh, uh, there was this undercover police officer that uh, came to me and I was so addicted. To he told me, he says, well, if you can find me a eight ball of cocaine at that time, it was $250. He said, I'll give you half of it. So I wasn't getting any money. So I took $250 and you know, I went somewhere I knew got the eight ball of cocaine, brought it back to the police, gave it to him, and then he takes out a badge and a gun. Now, am I a major dealer? No. I mean, he came to a man, he already knew I was addicted, and he offered me to give me half of it if I'd go get it for him, but you go into the system, you label as this drug dealer. and uh, That seems to me like entrapment. It, it does. Well, well, that was one of the issues that um, that we felt when when it was time for me to go to court, that um, you know that it was entrapment. But you know it, when you start talking about picking a jury, and um, and the jury has this mentality that well, if the police got to here, you must have done it, and uh, and then they'll give you a significant uh, 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 prison prison. I mean, imagine you know imagine um, a, you know police officers going door to door and being like. Here's the plans to a bank. I think you should rob it. That you'll definitely get away with it, and 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 you just give me half. Like there'd be thousands of people in the, in jail right now for robbing banks because they got entrapped by that system. And yet this is a normal thing um, when it comes to drug, you know, to drug enforcement. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And there's a racial as uh, uh, asset. I mean, yeah. a racial component of this situation as well. They put all of the resources in African-American community mm-hmm. uh, um, as far as drug interdiction and, 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 and the system. I mean, it's a racial system from, from, from top down. I mean, really, 
I mean, they don't put any money in areas that white folks are, and they selling drugs too, but they put all the resources within our community. Right. They don't care what people on Wall Street are doing or what these people are doing. (laughs) They don't care about, you know, that's a different type of cocaine, apparently. Mm -hmm. Well, we we even see it in in movies. You look at American Psycho, um, Christian Bale, you know, there are these high-end Wall Street, you know, white businessmen, and they're doing powder cocaine in the bathrooms and it's that's just the way of life for them but then you know look at instances like you donald where in reality mm-hmm. there are real life consequences for people of color yeah not not only that let me, let me give you a a, 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 a a true story um i was traveling and when you're traveling through the prison system when they're taking you from one prison to another um they'll stop you off at county jails you might be there Right. Yeah. Day, take you to another facility. And I was in North Carolina and and I was in the unit with some white guys who had um, got arrested out of New York. They were doing some major, they were moving major kilos of cocaine. Hmm. They were in, in the jail. And, um, and so they told me that um, they had been trying to work with law enforcement you know, to reduce their sentences and that sort of thing. And they said that they, um, they told our government said that um, they given the names of some guys that they were dealing major drugs with um, who were white. And the feds told them, said, listen, we're not interested in them. We want to know those black guys you've been giving the cocaine to. Absolutely. Well, he said wow. it, it freaked them out. He said, man, they weren't even interested in my supplies. Wow. They weren't black guys who I was bringing the drugs to. So they put them all in a 20 count indictment and locked them up and all of that. So it's no, what's their motivation? Is it, is it just racism? Is it easier to convict someone that's, that's black rather versus someone that's white? Like what's their actual motivation for, for, you know, totally disregarding anyone. Look, Curtis, I'm I'm not a social scientist. I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, there is a tremendous book that I suggest that you all read called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Mm. Um, and she lays it all out as broad. She and I were on a panel together in Oklahoma City some years after I got out. But she lays it all out in terms of, but I, it all comes back from slavery. Yeah. It all comes back that we're going to keep the underclass. It does. And I know people said, oh, well, here, here he goes. It does. I mean, when you look back from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s, there always has to be some some type of impediment, some type of blockage where we know that we could uh, uh, have a tremendous impact on destroying people of color, you know? Yeah. I know I'm talking to white folks, but I'm just keeping it real with you. you know? oh, it's important. Yeah, it's- I think, yeah, I, I think it's all orchestrated. It is. All- I think history points a picture, and we saw this too in our research, that once slavery was outlawed, there was another thing that they made legal to keep, you know, to keep minority people and black people down. And then there was another thing, and then the war on drugs. And so, okay, we're going to outlaw this, and we're going to make this okay. But like you said, there is all these. It's in our legal system to keep yeah. black members of our community down, and so it's we need to talk about it. Um, yeah. 
to, to me, it's it's not controversial at all to say what you just no. said. I remember, like, know. on the phone, Donald, you were like, you know, this might, I think you said, I'm not sure if you used the word controversial, but kind of like it might be like a stretch, I think is what you said to say that. I don't think that's a stretch at all. Um, to me, everywhere around me, it seems like things are set up in a way to make it more difficult for people of color. And I think I'm going to extend that a little bit further to, to people who are often more often in poverty, just of, of any color, um, to ri- to rise up and, you know, that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of thing, you know, like them, it's so difficult to do that if you don't have boots to begin with. Oh, no question about it. No question about it. And let me tell you something else. In the federal system, they introduced the uh, mandatory minimums. Right. Okay? All right. All right. Let's say, and they said that they introduced it under the new sentencing guidelines because they wanted to take disparity out of the sentences. Mm-hmm. They said that they didn't want a black defendant to be treated any different from a white defendant. And so they have sentencing guidelines. Interesting. And then, and then you know, and then if you fall in that guideline, then the criminal history points and you got this point, then you get 48 to 50 months or uh, uh, 108 months to 120 months or whatever. And because it's colorblind. But let me explain something to you. That lady justice that you talk about with the with the handkerchief around her head, mm-hmm. if you would look real close, she peeps under that. <laughs> she does. I don't care what kind of guidelines you got. Mm-hmm. That district attorney, that U.S. attorney, they, they peep under it and they know that's a black defendant. So you get no, you get no mercy on the guidelines because they can charge the way you want to. Mm-hmm. And this is why you have black defendants in there with 20 years with $200 worth of drugs and white defendants get three years and he had $200,000 worth. At the time, yeah. as you were going through the system, did you did you understand this? Was this something that you recognized at the time? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. How did that affect um, your mindset? Well, um, you know, it, it it made me very frustrated. You know, I, I did a lot of writing. You know, while I was in there to keep my mind going, I wrote a lot out here in the community. Every type of justice institute that I could think of that I wrote. You know, I wrote the black leaders. You know, I, I was frustrated at them. I'm like, man, these folks got genocide. Y'all sit around here. All of us in these prisons, we dying. And, 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 and you got guys 20 years old, got 30-year sentences and all that. They got legal genocide going on. Y'all, y'all need to be marching on Washington and, and, and stop that, like, pleading. But when you're behind those fences, like, nobody's thinking about us, you know? I mean, like, you're you're lost. It's over, you know? It's so interesting that you mentioned that originally the the um, mandatory minimums were done under the guise of of being more fair, but yeah. basically people figured out a way to turn that against itself and to actually, you know, only target people of color so that so that they would be more likely to get into the system to begin with. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've never been to a prison that twenty years. I've never been to a prison where it's at least 70% of the prison was, was not African-American. Wow. And you can understand that. In 20 years, I've been in a lot of different prisons because they don't let you stay in one prison too long because you become too powerful. Interesting. You, know, you start to 
people, you know, the officers start looking at you and the officers start saying, you know, these are really some decent people, oh. you know, so they, you know, and so they think you get a sense of power. So they really take they away all your leverage. Yeah. 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 Very much so. So Donald, you got sent to prison for, you know, for essentially entrapment with drugs. How, how do you think, do you think it would have changed the outcome of your personal journey had you been sent to a rehabilitation center first instead of going straight into the system? Well, I, I'll be honest with you. I, um, yeah, I think that my time deserved some prison time, mm-hmm. but I didn't deserve life. I had life. Well, I mean, that's that's insane. That was, is, was, I didn't have 20 years. I had life. A federal life sentence means life was that coming you know, off of the the three strikes rule no i had the criminal history points see i was addicted to drugs so i had two or three drug charges none of them more than a hundred dollar but i got three criminal history points for those convictions wow see that, that's that's something that people need to be aware of too if you got caught with say 10 bags of marijuana you get three criminal history points you get caught with 10 keys of cocaine, you get three criminal history points. So you may have 20 criminal history points and eight 500 drugs all together with it. Yeah, you understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, that's how they get you on that guidelines to give you those um, those substantial uh, 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 prison sentences. We made the we made- argument in the last episode that it, in a way it doesn't even make sense to send someone to prison for a nonviolent drug offense because if they're addicted to drugs it it doesn't really matter how harsh you make the the prison sentence that they're going to do it again because they're addicted that's the nature of addiction if they could avoid doing it you know they probably would have already if you know so in other words give them help not don't give them time but you you said a second ago that you thought you actually did deserve some time um what do you yeah, think about those two arguments? Years, you know? Maybe a couple of years because yeah. because I needed to get the drug taste out of my mouth yeah. and to get my head together. You know, you know, I needed that. I needed that kind of isolation. And if you could have a drug program that's intensive, you could have a two or three year drug program, mm-hmm. which which is a confined environment. But you're going to the psychologist. You're going to your drug treatment program. You're doing everything to find out where the addiction comes from. You still can't go anywhere. There could be a fence, but dedicated to helping you uh, get answers to that addiction. Um, so I think that'll be that'll be fine. What was the turning point for you? When did when did you get the answer for that addiction? When did you get the taste out of your mouth and get your head together? What was what brought that together for you? Probably after about three years in prison, you know, that part, I started looking at my life and doing a self inventory. And, um, you know, because you got to understand, I was sentenced to die. So, how, how uh, old were you at this point, if you mind me asking? I went in prison at 33. I came home at 53. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I've been home 10 years now. I'm 63. You know, um, but yeah. But after about three years, you know, I decided I'm like, listen, um, if I'm going to die here, you know, I want to make a difference in somebody's life. And so I started teaching in the GED program. That's fantastic. I started directing productions 
um, in prisons um, because I had a theater background. And, um, and, and, you know, and I was just amazed because, you know, I saw these young guys, 20, 21 years old, that were so talented. And I'm like, man, these guys got talent. They got something to offer, you know, and, um, and did everything that I could within that environment um, um, to make a difference. And, and, and it really helped me out because when I was able to get back into federal court, I had two retired prison officials that flew from, from Alabama to South Carolina to speak for me um, in federal court on my behalf. And wow. the judge at that said he'd never seen that before and he'd been on the bench. Wow. He was 90 years old, still on the bench. Oh, goodness and, gracious. And why did they do that? What, what, what was it about your relationship with them, or what did they see about you well, that, that they said they saw, it to the judge? What they saw, she had the book, because they're in the book. Uh, what they saw was, what they told the judge was who I was in that environment, and, I, and, that, and that I helped the system. He told the judge about the fact that if they had problems, uh, 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 you know, with the men getting along to keep violence down, you know, that I could go and talk to the to the guys better than they could. And I could, you know, and, and I think that was because the guys knew that I loved them. They knew, I, you, you know, I, I wanted the best for them and I had no agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wanted what was best for them. And I wanted them to know that there are people on the outside that depended on them. And and so, and I kept them busy in different productions and cultural programs like Juneteenth programs and Black History Month programs. And, you know, and I taught them, you know, how to get them involved uh, without using curse words. And they know if they be in any production that I do, they know curse words. Interesting. <laughs> in word, no curse word. They know what it is. <laughs> you know. We weren't going to be a part of that because we were a part of uh, trying to build back up. So uh, obviously you have, you of anybody knows, you know, what types of programs um, are helpful for inmates. So what do you think right now our public and private systems, prison systems need to do differently or what, what can they add, if anything, to help rehabilitate people in prison right now? Well, I, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting and a complex problem to explain. What I do know is, this is what I do. I know that it's very, very important to keep the inmates, the men, connected to family. The men have to know that connection outside of the prison fence. So I think more intensive programs where you actually bring families in, and they can do it. They got the, the facilities to do it to bring families in, in that environment, let them eat together, you know, keep that connection with the families. I think that's important. Also, I think it's important uh, to have uh, a strong uh, 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 programs to help them deal with the addiction in some capacity. Bring more, have more drug counselors than prison, than prison. Bring those counselors in, you know, bring them in. Because most of the guys who come to prison, contrary to what you believe, they're not violent guys. I know mm-hmm. on TV you see sensationalized, these guys that shot somebody and all that. Well, that's probably only about 15% that really 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Most of those guys are nonviolent. You you um, touched on a, an interesting point right there, um, and we talked about it quite a bit in the last episode about the idea of recidivism. Um, yeah. You know, and you talked about the idea of you know really getting inmates a chance to connect with their families and their support in the outside world. And what we found in our research and a big part of what private prisons do to create recidivism, to create higher incarceration, to then create more profit is basically working as much as they can to separate those who are incarcerated from their families and those people in the outside world to create these more kind of isolated, dangerous environments. So it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that having those connections to their families and those those close to them in the outside world is a really big part of reducing recidivism and increasing rehabilitation for those incarcerated. Oh, no question, no question about that. And recidivism comes from, from several from several ways. I want to speak on it briefly again. Yes, absolutely. Young guy do five, ten years in prison, and he comes out. Um, he wants to get his life together. Um, he applies for a job. Um, they ask, have you ever been incarcerated? He says, yes. He almost never gets the job. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now, he's unemployed. He has children. He wants to live a decent life. He want every all of us want to take care of our family and our children. I know that from having my dog. You know, when he has a puppy, he wants to take care of him. That's that's a basic human nature that's inside. Mm-hmm. So now he's getting really, really frustrated. Now he can't even take care of himself. He can't even feed himself, and um, and nobody wants to give him a job. Guess what? Pretty soon, Jerry's going to come by. Jerry's going to say, man, I got a package. You know, you can make some money. You know, so now he wants to do right. He wants to go straight, but he can't He can't get back in. He can't get a toehold. He can't get a foothold back in. And he don't have nothing. But Jerry over here says he's got a package. He can make some money. He's got children. And so he takes it. In less than a year, he's back in jail. You know, I mean, I'm I'm telling you, I I say this because this is what I know that's happening. You know, Mm -hmm. guys are really struggling to get back in to, to be able to get a job. You know, what happened with me? was very fortunate. You know, I had done 20 years. I had had a life. Right. Normally, normally, it would be really difficult, especially to get back in the political system, because politicians, you don't been to prison, they're afraid their opponent's going to use... And they did that. One time I got this job when I first got out. Um, I was working for a candidate running for Congress. And, um, and so here, one of these news outlets, one of these hit pieces, conservative hit pieces, they must have went to some political event I was at and saw me there with a briefcase. And so now there's a picture of me with a briefcase and says, uh, this campaign has Donald Gary out a convicted drug dealer for 20 years working for him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that happened to me. 
you know? Wow. Without any um, idea of your character or your personal being, yeah. anything, just straight to that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I think basically what, what we've all seen is that the system was designed to keep people in it. The American prison system is not necessarily um, constructed in a way that rehabilitates people. Really, once you're in, it's tough to get out of it. And I think a lot of people forget that. And unfortunately, that becomes some part of someone's identity. And that's really unfair and really unfortunate. And, and, and it has something to do with, with how we allocate money in this country. You know, I, I find it really, really interesting, really, really interesting that we will cut money to fund our schools and we'll keep putting money in prisons to build prisons and keep people in prison. I find that really, really interesting. Right. You know, you know the contradiction of that. Right. You know, you know, and that's what's happening. Curtis, earlier I interrupted you. You were about to ask a question. Do you remember what that was? I think it was on the topic of um, the vast majority of people in prison are in there for uh, nonviolent crimes. Are you know are not the kind of people you see on TV. And what that sparked in my mind was I heard um, a really great podcast um, that was talking about the show Cops, and that was something I used to watch. I mean, everybody used to watch it, right? It was yeah. on for you know thirty years or something like that. Um, and it actually recently just got canceled over yeah. um, controversy because it was it was part of this image that was making people look at black people in a negative light. And yeah. and the, in the, on the podcast, um, they were talking about the you know the the way that they made the show cops was that they would you know film all this different footage, but then they would just pick and choose the worst offenders they could find for entertainment value and and that even though they were filming you know a pretty equal number of of say white people and black people that they would like if they had the choice if they had similar you know kind of footage they would always go with the black offender first yes. and that and then that has skewed our vision of that community yeah. for 30 years and so that so when you said that it really just sparked that in my mind about like like the way that we think that somebody looks or acts versus the way that it actually is and the and how the system kind of continues and perpetuates that um, prejudice to 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 make something that isn't necessarily true more and more true because they create it they manufacture it absolutely you're 100% you 100% correct and it's the narrative and part of it is because in our America, in our country, we don't want to deal with the underlying issue of race. It is the lifeblood of this entire situation in America. We got to deal with it. I was going to say, I read a book um, that was talking about Reconstruction period after the Civil War. And already, like, like within the first year, people were like, oh, well, that, well, that's over. We don't have to deal with that anymore. Like, they were already just assuming that that by giving – People, black people, their their rights that that was just going to make everything okay, and that racism would kind of like deal with itself, but it never really has, has it? No, no, not at all, not at all. It's still very much alive um, in this country, and and it's you, you know you can see what's going on in this country in the political divide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, race is that you know with the with the with the with shooting with the police officers killing black men. 
black female laying in the bed and she got shot dead and got killed. Black man in Dallas, Texas, sitting in his own living room in his own apartment watching TV. He gets shot and killed. Yeah, by a police officer and, who thought that he was intruding in her apartment, but she walked into the wrong apartment. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and, and I mean, well, what we had the other day in, 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 in when they took over the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, just imagine, just imagine that if those were African-Americans at that Capitol and they had climbed that fence and climbed on the Capitol, mm-hmm. man, it would have been a bloodbath out there. Well, we, we saw the pictures of um, the National Guard troops standing on, I think it was the... Uh, um, Lincoln Monument, and it was right after the, I think it was right after the Kenosha um, BLM protests, and they had National Guards just plastered all over D.C., all over the mall, all over the Capitol, yeah. and then it came to, and obviously it's been the big discussion since January 6th, but it came to January 6th, and I think it was pretty much just the Capitol Police that were at the Capitol building and no one else. And yeah. and they, they knew there was something coming, but it's it all comes back to that institutional racism where it's always in the back yeah, of the mind. It's there. We'd be all right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing I think in this country, we're not ready to talk about the fact that there's a lot of racist white policemen. Like, that's why we see what we see. And we don't really like talking about that. The fact that the people that are enforcing the law in this country tend to be people who are very racist themselves. So it's pretty hard to have a justice system like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What, you must what can we, what can we do, Donald? What, what are some of your suggestions for, for how do we, how do we move forward? How do we talk honestly about this? You know, how, how do we, if there's somebody out there, they might be a police officer, they might be a judge, they, you know, whatever, just somebody that they might be the average Joe. Or, yeah, just the average Joe. You know, what what can somebody start doing today to start mending this this rift? Well, one thing I think that we could try to do is 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 look at religion in this country. We are the most divided country in in the world on Sunday mornings. Now, whether you go to a mosque, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian on Sunday morning, with two Americas. You know, we ride by a church and we know there's a white church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a black church. There's supposed to be one God. Okay. I mean, um, so I think that's somewhere um that we have to 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 look at it. And we've got to 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 deal with um uh and it's a complicated question because and I don't know if I have those answers that I can give you um, on a podcast because it, it takes great contemplation to come out, um, you know, uh, a thought in, 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 in a lot of people discussing it, a lot of think tanks. I think we need some think tanks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we need some think tanks to deal with race in America. And, um, and let's try to um, come up with some answers you know, that way, you know, I, I just, you know, and it's serious because if this country is going to survive, we have to do that. You saw what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was very telling. Yeah. Look what yeah. that showed the world. Damn, yeah. this is America, the beacon of light. Are you kidding me? You know, so 
you know, we've got a lot to repair. Donald, can you tell us a little bit about, about your book, the inspiration for, for, for writing it? Um, you know, uh, just tell us what it's about. Um, and, and, I really just write it. Um, I had a ghostwriter. Okay. Uh, my very good friend, Mrs. Steve Williams, he's on the book. Um, but um, what I wanted to do, um, Curtis, um, is use my life um, to help others. And, and so I wrote the book really um, asking um, um, for, you know, apologizing to my community and, 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 and really apologizing for being a disappointment to them. Because, uh, uh, Curtis, when I was coming up, uh, you know, I won the National Elks Public Speaking Contest in wow. 1970. I won the same National Elks Public Speaking Contest that Dr. Martin Luther King won coming out of high school. Wow. Marshall won, and Oprah Winfrey won it in 1970. I won it in 1976. I was the first South Carolinian to want to win the National Elks Public Speaking Contest. And so people expected big things out of me. They didn't expect me to be in prison with a life sentence to die in prison. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I let them down, you know, and, um, you know, get involved with drugs and addiction. You know, I let them down, you know, so I wanted to write the book. I wrote the book to apologize, you know, um, for my shortcomings, for letting them down. And also to give the guys hope that you can come back, you know, that here I am sentenced to die in prison, a federal life sentence where there is no possibility of parole. And I came back. And how did I come back? And that thought process that I went through to get back, you know, that belief system I had that had to get back and the will to fight, you know, and that's the book and, and, you know, they interviewed people in my life when I was in prison, people, before I went to prison, people after I went to prison, there's some politici- politicians that I worked with since I've been out of prison. Um, I was Bernie Sanders' state direct uh, deputy political director of his campaign for president. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's amazing because when when they hired me, um, I went to Charleston um, to meet Bernie and have dinner. And Bernie was speaking at uh, in Charleston. This season, name when he was running. Um, and I went to Charleston, and uh, they got me a place at the Hilton where he was staying. And he did an event and came back. And so we had dinner at this table afterwards. Back at the hotel, it was just about ten of us. And I was introduced to Bernie from a friend of mine who had me to come because they wanted me to work for that campaign. And they were listening and they, we were talking and they were saying what they needed to do, what they wanted to do with the campaign and that sort of thing. And um, so I'm sitting and they were like, they were like, I was already going to be on board. And uh, and so I was, I was sitting here, burning right next to me. And so I was like, I said to my friend, I said, do he know I done been to prison? You understand? <laughs> and... Um, so um, so she told Bernie, said, yeah, Don wanted you to know that um, uh, uh, Mr. Sanders, Senator Sanders, that uh, he, he served time in prison. 
And Bernie said, he's not in prison now. What that got to do with anything? <laughs> Gosh dang. If, if you could just hear that from everybody, wouldn't that like Yeah. Did you just want to hug him at the moment? Like Yeah, how did that how did that hit you? Uh, he's a real deal. I know How'd that make you feel? He's a real deal. Okay. Man. How did that make you feel when 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 Bernie said that? I mean, it just made me just work that much for him, and mm-hmm. and leaving him, and um, you know, and and you, you just you just love the guy because he he gets it, he yeah. sees yeah. it, he does, you know, he gets it, you know. Yeah. What what could like just on a side note, just because I I've, I've read a lot about this, I'm a big Bernie fan myself. You know, what could Bernie have done to to get his message better to the black community than he did? Because it seemed like by the polling numbers, Curtis, in general, the black community did not respond the same way that you did. Let me tell you why, Curtis. And this is just my observation of it, okay? Mm-hmm. The black community felt that Donald Trump won because white people were mad that they woke up and there was an African-American president of the United States named Obama. Mm-hmm. What the hell happened to this country? Yeah. And they were pissed. And so they felt that Joe Biden would get white votes. You understand? Okay. He would get the white vote that Hillary didn't get. And they didn't want to take a chance on losing this time. Right. So they liked Bernie. They believed in Bernie's message, but they didn't think white folks were going to vote for Bernie. Right. Interesting. They did that. Yeah. That's interesting. I I heard one interview with with a black woman on the news, and she said that she kind of said something similar that that she that she liked his message, but she didn't believe that um, that it was possible. She said it it, it was a nice it was it was nice, but it was a pipe dream. That was it was too 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 different than what it was now. Well, look at the black candidates in the race. You have Kamala Harris. Let me tell you something impressive, Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. Impressive. They ain't getting no black votes. Think about it, man. Wow. Well, I, I, I think you kind of got the sense of that across the board. You know, what a lot of people question. You know, who who voted? Was you know seven seventy four million whatever votes for um, Joe Biden? And yeah. I think what a lot of people don't understand is it wasn't so much they were voting for Joe Biden. I think a lot of people this election who would have voted for Bernie Sanders otherwise were voting strictly because they felt as though Joe Biden would win. He was electable. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You all got your answer. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, Bernie's over the budget committee now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's awesome. Understand this, okay? This whole, and we didn't took it to politics, did we? Yeah, okay. We, we always show. do. <laughs> it's, it's all part of the conversation. I just like talking to someone who knows. Like. <laughs> but, it's, it, but it's all connected. Bernie said, do away with this negotiation with the Republicans. It's not going to happen. 
Let's go the nuclear route, 51 volts, and and get rid of the filibuster, and let's go ahead and pass these laws. Mm -hmm. Stop playing around. That's going to make people a lot happier. (laughs) Yeah, he's right. Let's just go do what we got to do. It seems know, like yeah. sometimes, you know, when we try to compromise, the compromise ends up being that no one's happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we're coming up on time here, but to uh, bring it back to uh, the actual episode topic uh, for a oh, yeah. final point, um, Donald, for, for somebody who's struggling to understand the controversy around private prisons and mass incarceration in the United States. What's, what's a final message for somebody that, that you would say to them to try and get them at least starting to understand what the issue is? Okay. Well, I'm going to deal with private prisons first. Okay. America is a capitalistic society. Okay. In America, is all about the dollar. There is no dignity. It's about the dollar. And so when you talk about private prisons, they make money if you stay in prison. This ain't real complicated, okay? The only way private prisons survive, because they have shareholders, And the only way shareholders are going to put their money in those prisons is if they see a way to profit money, okay? Now, they profit money if you stay in the prisons. They don't profit money if you're out of prison. They don't profit if the prison population goes down from 1,000 to 500. That affects the bottom line. So it's about a dollar, okay? One, that's private prisons. It's all about a dollar. In state prisons, I think uh, it's used as a political mechanism as well. Because when you lock someone up, guess what? They can't vote. So it's a sense of control. You're taking voters off of the. I mean, look what they did in Florida. In Florida, you got to believe. I, I mean, you all familiar with this, but I got to mention it to you. Yeah. The hypocrisy, hypocrisy of this. In Florida, they automatically take the right to vote from people convicted in Florida. Wow. When they pass, overpass the the law, mm-hmm. so they can get their voted right. They went back and said, "Okay, that person has." to pay all fines and stuff uh, connected to their crime. Which is essentially a poll tax. Right, a poll tax. Yeah, then, di- disenfranchisement. When came in and raised money to pay the taxes for them, they fought that. Okay, so I looked it up, and in 2018, Florida passed a ballot measure in the midterm cycle with 65% voter approval, and it was an amendment that restored voting rights of Floridians after the, they completed all terms of their sentence, including parole and probation. But in 2019, the uh, Florida's legislature, which is Republican-controlled, proposed a law basically negating this, but also stating that um, it's requiring former prisoners to pay all court costs, fines, fees. Um, I mean, basically, as you said, a poll tax before voting rights could be restored. Um, they... 
um, were very vague and kind of broad in this, um, but it it said if they could pay their debts in one lump sum payment, then they could vote. But it also didn't take into account prisoners who were on, say, a payment plan. So if you either if you were on like a payment plan, you were making monthly payments on all your fees, you could not vote. And so unless you got out of prison and you could pay all your fees in one lump sum right away, you could not vote. Um, but in twenty uh, in May twenty twenty, this was actually um, uh, deemed unconstitutional uh, by U.S. US District Court Judge Robert Hinkle, um, basically saying this is a poll tax. You cannot do this. Um, and so it was turned over in court in twenty twenty. Wow, that lets you know what they were trying to do. So I mean, I, I didn't hear about the last thing. How did they? How did they fight against them raising the money to pay that back? I can't remember exactly how they did that, but they fought that. Okay. Is it wrong, do you think, to – is it morally wrong to make profit from incarceration? Yeah, without a doubt. And and we talked about this on our episode too is I, I don't – I don't believe that. I mean, the people that are, you know, going to prison and when they come back in our society, they're there's very important to integrate them as, you know, productive members of society. And if there's someone in charge of their rehabilitation that's making a profit off of them not doing very great when they get back into our communities, that scares me so bad because they they have so much power over the social constructs of our country. And, and I don't like that. I don't like them being in charge of people and not taking care of them. Absolutely. And when they get out of prison and they're on probation, they have to pay to be on probation. So now, right. not only do they not have a job, you expect them to pay $40 a week for their own supervision, and they don't even have a job. Man, it's crazy. You know, it has to be looked. But you got to read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. I, and, of I course, you get, and of course, you got to get my book. But I'd rather you get my book from me because I don't make any money when you buy it from Amazon. Okay, Amazon. But I don't get any money when you buy from Amazon. Maybe. If any listeners want to get your book, but for the grace of God, um, where 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 do they go? How do they how do they get in contact with you? Well, that's a good question. What <laughs> 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 they, they have to do? Um, um, I guess they have to go to my Facebook page and let me know. You think I can put yeah, that out there? If, if you're okay, yeah. Donald, plug yeah. whatever you want Donald to plug. Gilliard. Yeah, Donald Gilliard. Um, go to my Facebook page, Donald Gilliard. And that's G I L L I A R D. Yeah, G I L L I A R D. Go check it out, um, folks. Go read that book because feature. it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Also, there's a feature in the paper on me today. You all could pull it up. And Gab News, um, I just got the MLK Portrait oh, Award. Wow. From Representative Gilliard, um, and that's wow. in the News in Korea yesterday, but wow. it's in Gab News today. What's that a word for? Uh, Gab G A B News. Gab News Online. No, what what, what award did you get? Um, what, what, what is it for? What? It's for um, It's for people who have made tremendous contribution to the community, um, in the spirit of Dr. King's legacy. That's fantastic. Doing doing something for others. Cause I get called three o'clock in the morning. Somebody's got a grandson, 16 years old, that's having some problems and they need me to talk to him. Wow. Uh, or, or a lady who's wants to be a nurse and went to nursing school 
but she had a bad check from 15 years ago hmm. and she can cleared now to work in the health field. And I got to go and help her do that as well. So what kind of uh, advice do you give to somebody who's, who's uh 16 and, and, you know, it's kind of heading down a bad road. What, what advice do you give to them? Well, I, I just basically go and, 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 and share my, my story uh, 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 with them, um, Curtis. And, um, and really talk to them about because a lot of a lot's going through their head, especially the young guys. They're so influenced by a lot of things going on around them. You know, it's just a matter of um, you know a lot of them you know have problems at home. The father is not there because the dad in jail somewhere, and um, and so you, you need more black male role models and that sort of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on time, y'all. Donald, are there any final points you would like to make before we say goodbye? No, I just just want to thank you all for giving me this opportunity to share and to dialogue. And uh, and I hope this dialogue um, um, encourages you all to stay involved because you all are going to have to make a difference. Yep. yep. You can't talk about this and don't do anything. Yep, yep. you know, we we you you we got to do our part, and so I hope this dialogue leads to more dialogue and leads to some action. We've got to understand we're all in this thing together, man. We got a responsibility. Definitely. Let's work together. Absolutely, Donald. Thank Absolutely. you so much for joining us. Your your words were yes, so enlightening, you. and it was it was fantastic to hear your story and and really help us learn more about this. Um, thank thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad for the invitation. And um, let's go make a difference, man. Let's not just talk. About, <laughs> let's keep this dialogue going. And let's make a difference, man. We can do it. Amen. Thanks, right. Donald. Thank you okay. so much, Donald. All right. How are y'all feeling after that? Because that was an absolutely fantastic conversation. That was amazing. And I feel like I want to like immediately go out and join every possible campaign to help reform the prison system. I mean, we already know that these problems exist, but to hear about it from, from someone like Donald is just, gosh, it makes you really, really angry and also really inspired at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that like, I kept thinking the truth is going to win as long as people keep talking about their experiences, you know, telling people that they exist, that, you know, that, 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 that we need to change things. It doesn't matter how many websites, uh, you know, a company like core civic or which is formerly CCA, you know, it doesn't matter how many websites they put out that promote how wonderful their campuses are. And they're just like basically a college or a high school or whatever, like, you know, they brag about all these good things they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, when the people come out of these prisons, they tell the truth and they, mm-hmm. and, and they're relaying to us that, no, it, this is not some, you know, it's not some part of a normal life. This is something that, um, is destroying lives that, um, that it takes so much extra effort to, to do what Donald did and get, um, pull themselves out of that and get themselves back to where they should be. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, so the truth is going to win out if people keep talking about this and they keep staying involved. I really liked at the end how he, you know, pushed us a little bit. So we have to do something about it because it's true. The burden to change this is not just on folks who are um, impacted by this. It really impacts all of us. It's a massive societal problem. Um, and he's right. We can't just talk about it and then put this episode on a shelf. Mm-hmm. We really need to keep talking about it. And if you can get involved, do that. Well, and so much of his getting involved and making change and the action that he talks about is done within your local communities. You know, we, right. we I feel like a lot of people get caught up in the idea of change being this big, grand, like, ordeal this on this big stage, the national stage. But really, if you want, if you want change... You know, you can start small, start with your friends, you know, start with your schools, start with your, you know, local councils. It's it's not as daunting as it seems at times when you do it in your backyard. And that's what it's he's done. It's ridiculously easy to get local into local office. Like I've been told that over and over again that, you know, if you truly care and you can truly, you know, if you can sit through some, some boring meetings sometimes, <laughs> you know, you can, you can make a difference, um, on the local level. And even though it doesn't seem like, you know, you're doing enough, if enough people do that, it all kind of, you know, it keeps adding together, um, to, uh, to make a difference in, in right. the long run. So yeah, the little things do make a big difference. You know, and we got off track there a little bit um, in the episode, um, going away from the prison system and incarceration and whatnot. But I, I made the point off air that it's all so connected. It's all intertwined, that it's all part of this one grand system. And as Donald said, you know, we're three white people and he was uh, a black man. And it's, it's important to have these conversations about things like race. That has to do with the entire issue. And some people aren't willing to have those conversations. And it's it's important to because it's a real thing that affects everybody. You know, whether you benefit pr- from it or whether it doesn't benefit you, it's something that affects everybody. And it's something that needs to be talked about. Now, a lot of times we end up uh, speaking to the choir, uh, people that are just like us, that, that mm-hmm. you know, that think just like us, that are around us all the time, you know, and those people don't need, you know, those words quite as much. The people who who need to, their minds changed or even or in probably in most cases just to be told that this is a thing that is actually going on in modern day America. Um, that's that's a bigger deal to get people that normally would not be engaged engaged and and so I, I really hope that that you know the listeners out there will will hear this will share it with friends um you know both people of color you know people not um just you know anyone and everyone that that they think would care to hear this and would care what's going on with with these systems and with these people that are kind of trapped in them Kara mm-hmm. as the architect of the series and the person who led our research um throughout this whole dive into private prisons and incarceration in America. What went through your mind? How did it impact you to do all this heavy, deep research in part one of the series and then hear it talk back to you from a firsthand account from Donald? What what did that mean to you? Yeah, I feel like it's, you know, it's one thing when we're doing our research and um there's still a level of, of dehumanization that is there. And then as soon as Donald's an awesome guy, and then as soon as you put a face and a name to someone, 
that we've been reading about, it's, it becomes a lot more emotional. I thought, I felt very emotional talking to him. Um, and it definitely sparked even more of a desire in me to get involved on some level. Um, and so that's why I think people like Donald are really important because it does help us humanize that. It helps us understand that it's not just statistics on a paper. These are people's lives we're playing with people like Donald who are, extraordinarily talented people who can make a massive difference in our community. And if we keep pushing people like that down, and if we don't do anything to change it, we're going to miss out on some really great opportunities to have some leaders in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that'll probably do it for our episode. Um, Curtis, do you have a final point you wanted to make on this topic and our conversation with Donald? Um, I, I just I appreciate him coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate Kara bringing up this topic. Um, and uh, and Donald actually reached out to me um, after I um, posted on um, some Facebook sites of, uh, you know, did anybody want to talk about this? And a mutual friend of ours um, recommended him and then he he sent me a message. So, you know, so thanks so much to him to for for making that extra effort to talk about something which I'm sure, you know, it causes a lot of um, anxiety, you know, um, even to think about it all and to not only do that, but do so in such a, a meaningful and, and, um, you know, intelligent, well thought out way, um, was very impressive. And I, and I, I appreciate that so much. Mm-hmm. And if you do want to, once again, um, if you do want to get a hold of Donald's book, but for the grace of God, I should be dead. The life of Donald Gilliard. Um, and he, uh, ghost wrote it. Um, it was written by his friend, as he said, Steve Williams, if you want to find that, like he said, go on his Facebook. You can find him at Donald Gilliard, D-O-N-A-L-D-G-I-L-L-I-A-R-D. He is self-published. And so if you want the money to go to him, reach out to him personally, and he'll get it to um, avoid Amazon. It is on Amazon. But if you want to get the money to him and support him, reach out to him on the Facebook machine. Um, Kara Curtis, other than his book, um, and I wish I wrote down the book that he was referencing, but I know he referenced uh, it multiple times. Kara, do you have that? I actually own the book. It's sitting on my nightstand. I'm literally going to start picking it up and reading it tonight. The new Jim Crow laws. Okay. Fantastic. Yep. It is by, let's look it up really quickly. Um, um, yep. So it's the new Jim Crow laws and it's about, uh, mass incarceration, uh, written by Michelle Alexander. There we go. So go check that book out um, from what I hear. It's a fantastic read. Perfect. All right, y'all. If you want to get a hold of us, uh, send us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. This was actually, yeah, our first uh, listener suggested uh, series. So uh, thank you, dear listener, for suggesting this topic because uh, it was was a really good one. I thought that turned out great. Um, So let us know if there's something that you want us to cover We'll cover it. We just did. So let us know if there's something that you find interesting that you want us to dive into. And uh, we can all learn a little bit together. Uh, Check us out on Facebook and Instagram where I still haven't posted anything. Um, Yeah, we'll be back. I'm not sure what the next episode is going to be, but listen in for episode 20. Yeah, so we'll talk to you all later. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.